self-confidence comes from having your own back. Sometimes when we consider the possibility of failure or humiliation or loss or, you know, anything like that, any sort of setback, we think of it as though it's a destination. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Hi there, friends. I am thrilled to announce that I've written my first book, and it is called Values First how knowing your core beliefs can get you the life and career you want. I have poured my heart into this book with personal stories and stories from coaching clients using the values first framework. Between the constant pressure of job performance and demands on your time, it's easy to lose sight of your values, letting them shift out of alignment. Those symbol misalignments are keeping you from feeling joyful and fulfilled. Learn how to recenter your life and career around what truly matters to you. Order Values First now at your favorite independent bookstore or at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I want to make sure that you are the first to know about every book activity that we have in store, including virtual and in-person events. Stay up to date by joining our list at thecatchgroup.com slash values first. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. Welcome to this week's episode of You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation with guest Asya Bribieska Hadin. She's a former management consultant and strategy expert turned women's leadership and executive coach. As the CEO of Bridgewell Professional Services, she teaches accomplished professional women to become influential, sought-after leaders without overworking, people-pleasing, or selling their souls. I love whenever I can connect with another coach. I learn so much from them. And we had such a great discussion. And we talked about really how to handle criticism from anyone. And by anyone, I mean anyone, including and especially internal criticism how we criticize ourselves, which happens a lot. And we also talked about handling external criticism from key stakeholders. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. I am so excited to be here and just to be able to connect with you and be in this conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure just getting to know you just a little bit before we started the podcast. And I think we're both just really excited about this topic and where our conversation will go. And just to kick us off, I'd love if you could tell our listeners, if you could tell us a little bit more about your story. Absolutely. So my background is in 
management consulting, and that's kind of what I wanted to do right out of business school. I actually went to business school because I heard that was the easiest way to get into management consulting, right? So I was very deliberate about doing all that. And, uh, you know, I took the right classes and got involved with the right things and went into management consulting. And I loved that everything was kind of like a puzzle, hmm. right? Like trying to figure figure out how to make it all work and how to make it all come together. So I was in consulting for several years, you know, left that once I had kids and didn't want to be traveling anymore, but always came back to roles that had to do with some sort of, that were in some sort of advisory capacity and just kind of figuring things out, right? So increasing capabilities for the organization or the team or whatever the case is. And, you know, most recently, like maybe the last eight years before I opened my company a couple of years ago, I worked in enterprise transformation. And uh, in that space, it really paid off to stay curious because what I, I found is that over the years now, this was either whether it was in management consulting and it didn't matter whether the industry was healthcare or entertainment or anything else, I noticed that there were folks that always seemed to do better, like their teams always outperformed. And it wasn't necessarily because they had the best team. Like it wasn't necessarily because they even had the best or spot on strategy or tech or it was nothing like that. But what I boiled it down to and kind of ran with, right? So, so that's kind of what I hold on to is that they seemed to be the teams that really believed they could figure it out, even if they didn't know what was coming next. So they had this self-confidence, like real self-confidence that was not circumstantial. It was not dependent on them knowing what was coming next, having done it before, or have, having even any level of familiarity. Like what it came down to was like, yeah, we don't know. Things might go sideways, but we'll figure it out. And that was, I don't know, that was just, you know, to me, kind of like a kind of brain bursting moment there because we spend so much time and so much investment and so much effort trying to get it right, right? In terms of buying the right software solution or hiring the right consulting team or doing, you know, whatever it is, right? Getting the to-dos right, that really what was more important than those to-dos, which I refer to as the tangibles, right? You can get all the tangibles right, but what needs to come before the tangibles are those intangibles. So that's what got me into this space to really talk about those intangibles, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on inside, what's going on in our heads that actually makes the difference. So it was a super long way of responding to, <laughs> I kind of fell in love with that, that leadership and personal development and growth side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all the work that I did ended up having that component being my, my favorite aspect to it. Even if I was there to talk about the tech, right. Mm -hmm. That that's, it kind of went, went to that piece. And then I eventually decided that I wanted to do that more deliberately, help create leaders and help really advance capacity in particular for women, mm -hmm. opportunity for women. And that brought me into executive coaching and leadership development. And so I opened my company uh, next month. It'll be two years, actually, two years ago. Yeah, right, right as the pandemic was taking off. So it's been an interesting, right, an interesting learning experience. Yeah. And so that's what we've been doing since. And I absolutely love it. I have some of the most amazing clients on earth. I like a lot of folks listening to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And, and 
that's my very long-winded story and uh, how I got here. And I'm now in this conversation with you. And I, I love talking about confidence and empowerment. And then, of course, we do a, a lot of actual training on the leadership side and the, those tangibles we talked about. But I really like to you know, get to the, okay, you probably have all the credentials you already need. You're probably brilliant and overeducated by most standards in the world. So what do we need to tweak to make it all come together and actually pay off? Wow. I really resonate with what you just mentioned. It's so interesting because I, so I love talking to other coaches and leadership development geeks. I call myself a geek. I hope that's okay. But I I lumped you in there with me. (laughs) But I feel like the same passions that you have, I totally resonate with those. And so often I find that some of my clients are like, okay, I need to go to this certification or I have to take another this or another that when really they have all the things that they already need. Maybe it's a tweak or a refinement or just a change in mindset. Right. And so this idea of, of confidence Um, I want to pick your brain because I think it's, especially for women, it's it's been, I mean, imposter syndrome, all the things it's a theme and it's not going away anytime soon. Right. So unfortunately, (laughs) yeah, it is, it is. And honestly, I think it's a, it's our own creation, right? Say more about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, from where I'm sitting, it's our own creation and we, we almost, we, aggravate it and actually amplify it by the things we do that are, it seems counterintuitive. Like there's no way that can make it worse. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, when you, you think about, I want to feel more confident, you don't go to figuring out what's in your head necessarily, right? We go out there to try to figure out what to do. And so we'll do things like, okay, well, I'm going to do, you know, this, the superwoman stance before all of my presentations, you know, and, and strike a power pose for a few minutes. I'm going to repeat affirmations to myself to remind me, you know, how awesome I am. I'm going to make sure I have all the credentials in check and then I'm dressed, you know, dress the part. But what often happens after we've done all those things is that we, we come out the other end, still feeling filled with doubt. And so then we think, well, I must be even more messed up or more of an imposter than I thought I was because I did all the things and yet I'm not seeing the result. Yeah. Right. But the reason we don't see the result is because you can't take external action to address an internal struggle. It does not work that way. You know, that's like, that's like dropping your keys in the garage, but going to look for them in the driveway because the lighting is better. It's like, no, it's def- it's more convenient, but you're not going to find what you're looking for there. Right. So, you know, that I think just exacerbates that feeling, that sensation of being an imposter and like wondering why the, the doubt is not going away. I'm just, I'm a big believer actually that the doubt is supposed to be there. If you're breathing and living human being and you're up to big things, the doubt is supposed to be there. That is not going to go away. The problem with the doubt is when you let the doubt be the driver to your decisions, Mm. right? So a lot of my practice and my coaching is on being deliberate about how we make decisions. And when you, we realize, right, that we're making decisions based on doubt, that at least gives us an opportunity to be like, okay, well, what would I rather have driving my decisions? 
right? And that's when we get to be, you know, super creative and intentional and purpose-driven and decide that what we actually want to have drive our, our decisions is, you know, that, that ultimate goal or that next accomplishment or our, whatever that North star is for you, but making that decision, like there's almost no wrong decision as long as you're doing it on purpose. Mm, I love that. So good. Oh my goodness. This, that idea of doing all the external things and expecting the internal to change. I think that's exactly what people are doing. Yeah. Looking for their keys in the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I have a, a friend who would call it, how'd she say? She'd say, yeah, they're going to the hardware store looking for milk. stop <laughs> <laughs> Because they left empty handed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so then we find ourselves in these loops, like you said, or yes. even worse off, right? Or even worse off. Yeah. And, and, and again, I don't know if you've, if you've seen this and probably some of the, you know, the folks listening, this might resonate, but you know, we often go after an accomplishment because we're thinking that it's going to fill some gap. Right. And so then once we've met the accomplishment, we realize the gap is still not filled. And again, you know, just like I just talked about, that's because you can't take external action to address an internal challenge, but we don't recognize that it's not working. So we keep on thinking, we just, we haven't found, you know, we, we just need more credential and then we need more training and, you know, that'll give us more credibility. And then I get to believe that I am a confident, capable professional, right? But the challenge is, again, that gap never gets filled and you already were that confident, capable professional. You just weren't seeing it, you know, like we were looking in the wrong place for it. So yeah, it really does exacerbate it because we get into these loops. We get into these loops of credential seeking, accomplishment seeking, validation seeking, and people pleasing, all to try to at least temporarily address that internal gap. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everything that you just said for high achieving women times 10, it's especially. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a real struggle. And the funny thing is that with the other thing I'm finding and that I, I keep researching is that when you do actually get the recognition or the validation, something happens inside and it, it almost just further aggravates that sense of imposter syndrome or of pretending because calling attention, even though it's counterintuitive, again, calling attention to that accomplishment actually has a way to immediately take us to the, yeah, but if you only knew about this, that, and the other about me, right? So we immediately go to the right, like, yeah, I did do that, but you know, like it didn't fix all this, right? And we might not say it out loud, but our handy dandy automatic brain is ready to take control and remind us everything else that's still missing or that's not perfect or whatever the case is, right? Every, every other should. So how are those teams that you mentioned at the beginning? You said, you know, these, some teams, like how, how do they do it? The ones that are, I don't want to use the word resilient, but maybe they know, they know that they, they can figure it out, right? They know they can figure it out. What are they relying on in the, you know, in the face of that internal criticism and doubt or, 
so I guess two questions internally and then maybe externally too, because even if people are telling us you're great, there are always those people who are handing us opportunities for feedback, right? And, and it's, it's that, yeah, opportunities for feedback and quotes, um, it's criticism, right? Or you could have done it this way. So I guess it's twofold. What are they doing for that internal, you know, churn that we feel? And then how do you deal with it externally too? I'll tell you my take and the way that, you know, I, I work with teams and clients internally. And my recommendation always is that you be okay with the self-doubt right? So self-doubt is, is not your enemy. So that's fine. So we, we set that one aside, but the other side is that like, I teach that self-confidence comes from having your own back. Sometimes when we consider the possibility of failure or humiliation or loss or, you know, anything like that, any sort of setback, we think of it as though it's a destination, We think that that experience, that disappointment, that failure, again, that humiliation, whatever that is, is where we're going to stay. And so if you believe that that's where your story ends, then of course you're unwilling to take risks and be open-minded and, you know, go for the thing or whatever it is. Of course, right? It makes perfect sense because you don't want your story to end there. So you know, my take on that is that we recognize that it's not the title of the book. It might just be a section, a little section in a chapter. That's all that that was like, that was just a moment. So it's just up to us to not make that setback a death sentence for our self-esteem, because that's where we go with it. I love the having your back. If you're having your, your own back, it's not the whole book. It's, it's like a sentence or a footnote or a something. Yes, that's it. It's just part of, it's part of the story, but it's not your whole story. But I think where we decide that we'd rather not even try is when we're just, we're too afraid of being with the disappointment. But what I try to help people, you know, recognize is that you've actually then decided to be disappointed in advance because you didn't even decide to go for it, right? You decided to fail in advance, you know, because you didn't even, you know, take that step forward or lean into it. So, you know, you're doing it anyway, except that when, when you decide to fail or be disappointed in advance, you don't even get that benefit that you do on the other side. Like when you stumble of like kind of getting the extra experience of finding new and creative ways, you know, to deal with the setback. There was no learning to be had. And then needless to say, the possibility of success, right? Because what if it did work? What if it did go the way that you wanted it to go? But every time we decide to fail in advance, we have very efficiently wiped all of that out. I love this idea of not being disappointed in advance. Like how much time are we wasting? Oh my goodness. Yes. But yeah, I mean, you're so right though. I mean, don't we spend a a tremendous amount of time? Yes. You know, failing or fearing in advance when the only thing on the other side of that is, you know, a feeling that doesn't feel good, a discomfort. Yeah. And we're, so we're, I feel like we're wasting, physically wasting time doing that, but we're also like, how much energy are we wasting? Like it's a drain. It's a drain. Yeah. Oh my God. It totally is. I mean, and when you think about 
you know, the level of stress in our careers, especially mm -hmm. as high achieving accomplished women, the demands outside of our careers, the mental energy that is being absorbed by either pretending, worrying that we're not good enough or avoiding what we really want for fear of failure is like astounding to me, right? I just Im imagining if that wasn't there, what else would you be taking on and doing with your life and your relationships and the people and things you love? It's like, it, like it, it just blows my mind when I think about that. There's so much on the table that we're, we're giving away. And like you said, it's, we're doing it to ourselves. We're doing it to ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And, but we don't know. And that's right. the thing. That's why I think, you know, the, the conversations we engage in with our clients, I, you know, that you same as with me, a lot of it is just bringing awareness to, okay, did you know you were thinking that? And now you, that you know, you're thinking that, right. Is that the thought choice you want to make? Mm -hmm. Like, is it serving you to decide I can't fathom or handle the possibility of failure? So I'm not even going to try. Like, is that really where you want to go to where you think you're going to be so disappointed that it's going to destroy the very essence of you, which of course, you know, isn't the case for these accomplished high achieving women. That's just, that's not reality, mm -hmm. but we don't even challenge it. Like we just think it's so we think, what are they going to think? I'm going to be humiliated. My life is over. You know, it's like that, that inner teen drama that never goes away. <laughs> the angst, the internal angst. Exactly. It's like, yeah. What about, so what that's, so we talked a lot about internal, what about external? What happens when we get that external criticism could have done it this way, or, Hey, I have the feedback for you. Do you have a minute? Yeah. Yeah. How, how did those teams that do it well handle that criticism with, with and keep that confidence that you mentioned before? I, I think that's a, such a good question. What immediately came to mind is a lot of those teams tend to almost be their biggest critics. Like they're almost like measuring and figuring out, but I, I do have an idea about that. I, I suspect that a lot of that comes from approaching the, the challenge or the setback almost through a scientist lens, right? It's not a failure. It's just more learning. Yeah. So when we're willing to take on that level of curiosity and well, let's see what happened or let's see what we can do and let's see what went well and what didn't go well. I think it just puts us in a different space because we're looking for the opportunity, right? And because it doesn't mean anything about us. We're scientists. You know, if my experiment works or not, it doesn't, it's not a judgment on me. It just gave me more information. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I suspect, and I take it that that's what the teams are doing, right? Actually looking at it with that level of curiosity, there's not judgment there. It's literally just curiosity. Like, okay, what, what's here for us to get? What's here for us to see? And that kind of carries over into the, you know, when we're talking about just individuals, right? From person to person, when you have that very helpful relative. <laughs> wants to. The auntie that needs to tell you how she feels. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Every time, every time. Every time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that the angst around criticism just comes from what we make it mean. We assume that the criticism is about us. You know, there, there might be, there, there, there's a, a little bit about it that might, there might be something in there about us. And we definitely want to listen for that. But more likely than not, the criticism is about the criticizer more than it is about the criticized. 
but we don't necessarily always see it that way or even believe that that's the case. But it's so interesting because, you know, in, in the space of, you know, psychology and psychiatry, they can actually create, because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I know that psychiatrists can create a reasonably competent diagnosis simply by listening to how some criticizes. So I think, I don't know, to me, that is incredibly telling that the criticism is less about us than we, we've been led to believe it is, although it feels awful. It it could, it could feel awful to your point. If that's, if that's how you're perceiving it, as opposed to, Hey, it's data or, Hey, we're curious. Um, I, so I love that kind of mindset shift there. And I also love just the question, what is their, what is their feedback saying about them? It might be that they're a data person and they're asking for a different level of data, or it might mean that it might be just a way to interpret them even more or interpret their needs or wants maybe too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at it through their lens or right. Or their, their filter, however you want to think about that. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Um, I think that that's spot on. And also, again, we can be the most, you know, enlightened and, and open individuals, but criticism doesn't feel good (laughs) to human beings. Right. And there are a couple of primary reasons that 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 boils down to. And that's that we don't like to be controlled and we don't like to be put down. Right. So criticism has an incredibly efficient way of doing both of those all at once. At the same time. Thanks. criticism. (laughs) Yeah. At the same time. You know, the other thing is that with criticism, usually the only reason. Well, that's not the only reason. A primary reason that people criticize who actually are looking out for your best interest, right? They do want to catch you winning is because they want to see a change in behavior, right? Think about it when we criticize when we criticize someone. And again, that doesn't go away. So <laughs> we just have to catch ourselves. So when we criticize, it's, we're not going to criticize if we see the behaviors that we already wanted to see. We criticize because we're hoping that it's going to trigger a, a different way of being for the other person. The problem is it doesn't work. You know, we don't respond to criticism by being really deliberate and strategic and shifting our behavior in that way. But criticism isn't really going anywhere, right? But when we recognize that we're criticizing because we want to shift in behavior, then that can at least make us curious. Like, okay, what shift in behavior are they looking for? Sometimes you're going to find they're not looking for a shift in behavior. Sometimes you're going to find that it's unfortunately intended to be a put down or to keep you quote unquote humble or Mm -hmm. whatever the case is. Right. And at that point, you know, we get to choose how, you know, what we want to do with that. I did, there are some things that I, I recommend to people when they're receiving criticism and just kind of want to want to be deliberate about how they respond to it. Right. Um, when there's that interaction going on, I just doing that quick check about what do I want the outcome to be is really important to me. Like, and in the moment, it's really hard even to ask ourselves that question, but just for a quick second, I'm like, okay, is there any way or chance that this can turn out the way I want it to turn out? Or does that, this person just want to share their perspective or, you know, put down or critique or, recommendation or whatever the case is, 
right? So just understanding what it is that we want that outcome to be. Unfortunately, when we're receiving criticism, we often want the person to change their mind. <laughs> we want them to see that we either take it personally and decide, oh, they're attacking me, like, right? Not, not the how I did it or not the deliverable or the result, but they're, they're attacking me. So we take it as that. So yeah, I think it's just, it's so important to distinguish what that intent is over there and then what you wanna do about it you know, how you want to approach it. Because sometimes it's just not worth having the fight when you know it's not going to shift the needle. Yeah. Right? Do you have an example of that? Is there? Yeah. I think, you know, for example, if one of the recommendations that I offer, and it, this is really common, is if you're getting criticism that feels unwarranted, I actually recommend asking the person for specifics. You know, give me specific details and let me know what you would have liked to see. And the reason I go there is because when, if I've received criticism and I say, yeah, sure. What, what could that have looked like? Or what should that have looked like? It does a couple of things. It not only puts both of you in solution finding mode, but if they were just trying to jab, it disarms the, the situation because they don't know how to respond. Yeah. Right. They don't they have, give you, they don't have an example, right? No, it's a feeling or a something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That was all it is. And, and that point at that point, again, the, the, the golden is in you being able to decide then that, oh, I see. Okay. And let it go because the word, the last thing we want to do is get pulled into trying to convince, you know, convincing energy is really weird and ugly and we get angsty about it. So the last thing we want to do is get into convincing energy. So I always recommend listen, listen for what there is to get. I also recommend that we listen almost as though we're listening to somebody read off a shopping list. I know it, that sounds really strange and you just kind of have to have your poker face on, but almost just, just listen and stay neutral and almost curious, like, I wonder getting them to want to say this, not from a place of judgment, but literally from a place of curiosity, right? Because you can also tell when somebody's shifted to that place of, oh, I'm just, you know, crossing arms and I can't hear anything you say, right? So we can tell when somebody's done that. That totally makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I love um, that advice of listening, like it's a shopping list, like it's neutral. And because yeah. um, the opposite would be, if I'm defensive, then I'm I'm not listening. I'm thinking of the next thing I'm going to say to rebut whatever you say. Right. right so right. I'm not active listening at all. Um, so getting to neutrality, I love that advice. And again, sometimes you're not getting to neutrality. Sometimes you just got that poker face on. Yeah, that's sometimes. right. It looks like, it looks like it it's very like neutral. neutrality. Your <laughs> brain may be freaking out, you know, mm -hmm. so we gotta work humans and that happens and that's okay. But even just trying to, to, you know, keep yourself looking neutral can, can add that little bit of buffer that you need. Um, I also recommend if you don't think you can stay neutral at the time, just excuse yourself. So, you know what, I really want to be able to give you the attention. You need to have this conversation, but I actually have a call I need to get on, or I was about to run to the ladies room or whatever the case is literally have an escape plan. Just say, oh, I was about to pick up the phone because I owe somebody a call back and excuse yourself and remove yourself from the situation because then that gives you an opportunity to just regroup 
and be able to, to hear it or receive it and do with it what you actually need to do, you know, on purpose from a, a kind of a more, you know, settled place, right. As opposed yeah. to feeling like you were just escaping or running yeah. away from a problem or something right. like that. And how do you suggest, like, if you, if you don't feel like it's a time to have, like, you're not emotionally not in the place to have that conversation or actually do have a call or whatever it is, like, how do you enter back into that conversation in a way that makes it not seamless, but like, I want to hear from you. You're, this is important. Is it picking up right where you left off or, Oh, Hey, I have a minute now. Or how, how do you enter back yeah. into that conversation? I think all those things you just said were, were perfect, you know, just like you would with any other conversation. Right. I think the reason that we might be questioning ourselves about how to do it is because there's, we've already got a lot of angst kind of rolled yeah. up into what's going to happen. So if, you know, just approaching it like any other conversation, yeah, hey, I have a minute now, or hey, did you want to pick up? I really wanted to get your, you know, I really wanted to get your feedback and sorry, I had to run off, you know, so, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I also recommend, you know, when you're ready and you're in that space, actually, you know, grab a notebook and your pen and actually start taking notes. Say, hold on a second. I want to make sure that I get all of this down. Because again, that does something else to the other person's mind. It also makes them conscious about what's coming out of their mouth, you know, whether it makes any sense or whether it's just a rant. I mean, it won't always work, but it provides that opening. And I also think it keeps you like us, you know, the individual receiving the criticism and kind of a, some level of control, even though it feels like we have no control over the situation. Right. Because they're saying, hold on, I want to make sure that I get this down. And you actually take it down as you would a, if you're an analyst, if you're taking down requirements or needs or whatever the case is, and just get it down and then read it back to them afterwards. Say, did I get all that? Is there anything missing? Because again, it's just a shopping list. It's yeah. just a preference list they're giving you. These are my top 10 radio stations I prefer. Okay. Did I get all of those? <laughs> it has nothing to do with you necessarily. Well, and it, and it shows that you have care and concern for their feedback or criticism, whatever it is too. You were listening if you, if you took down all of, all of the notes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and that's obviously particularly important because oftentimes, even if the feedback is coming from, you know, our boss or our main client or our executive stakeholder or or, um, sponsor, we don't necessarily want to hear it and it doesn't feel good, you know, so to the extent that we can approach it as, you know, from that solution oriented view or perspective, it also just, again, it keeps us in control, but I think it just also probably makes us even look good in the other person's eyes and might even make them question their, their critique, right. Or make sure their critique is not about us, but rather about the task at hand. The task, the situation and exactly. moving to an intended outcome. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. I love all of your advice. It's so, it's so good. And I think it's, I feel like I can, I could talk to you, Asia, for forever on these things. It's so good. We could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I want to make sure that we know how to, that we tell our, the listeners how to connect with you. So I love leaving a call to action. So what do you think our call to action is and how can we connect with you? Absolutely. So 
the first, I actually have some uh, tools and I have a summary of some of the, the tools that I um, shared here regarding responding to criticism for any, anyone who's interested. So you guys can find that and watch a little 30 minute video. I think you can even put it on double speed if you want to hear me talk really fast. <laughs> <laughs> and that is at bridgewellpro.com. That's my website and I have free resources there, but that is one that I would recommend. And when you go to that resources page, though, I think a good follow on to this conversation, just because it, it keeps our, you know, might keep your brain primed to, you know, what's important in the moment or in the situation is I just put a resource up there recently, um, three leadership conversations you should be having at work. So I recommend downloading that one, you know, and seeing if you're having those conversations at work, they're, they're different. They're very unique, three unique conversations, but that I think probably apply no matter your industry or your role. Wonderful. And thank you so much for making those available to our audience. And we'll put um, the links to those in the show notes as well. Okay. Excellent. And then one other, you will see when you go to the site, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, mm -hmm. I'll have a leadership confidence intensive weekend coming up. That is my absolute, like my lowest priced offering and just the most beloved now, you know, it's something that I've just started doing this year and uh, we already had one and it was fantastic. So you can read about that leadership confidence intensive weekend. And we just go to the next level with a lot of what we touched on, you know, in this short conversation and walk away with exercises and kind of group masterminding over the weekend. And again, participants love it. So take a look and see what the next date is available or add yourself to the wait list. Cause I, I would love to see everyone there. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for this conversation and connection. I really appreciate you. And I hope that we stay connected. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. Bye. I want to thank you so much for listening to the, you belong in the C-suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple podcasts by leaving a review. You're helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S and E podcast management to get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values. Go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.